Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. No mucking around today. Let's just rip in. This is episode 122, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with the legendary Pat Powell. I think we're rolling. Pat Powell, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thank you very much. Man. It's uh it's it's an honor. It's good to have you here, man. Um now your first name, can you help me pronounce that? I I um is it can I have a shot? Can I give it a crack? Yeah. Yeah. Is it Patel? No. no. Patu. Patu. Okay. Right. So yeah. can but you Pat. But yeah, I know, I know, Pat. Yeah, yeah, I've just seen it through all my research and stuff. Yeah. Um, Pat is actually my nickname. Oh, right. Okay. Right? So, okay. So what it is? It's 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 a Jama- it's a Jamaican name of an owl. Right? Oh, wow. Okay. A particularly ugly owl. <laughs> so when when Jamaicans hear it, they all fall apart laughing, you know. Right. But um, what it what it was about was me sneaking out at night. My sisters called me Patu because I was the <laughs> night owl. So that's cool. So that's, so that's where that comes from. Yeah, that's cool. I thought, um, because um, I got a note here, ask him what it means. It's probably got some deep um, history, family meaning. No, like, family, family, definitely <laughs> yeah, not, yeah, deep, no. <laughs> not deep. Yeah. Right? If you see a picture of this owl, man, you have a heart attack. It's that ugly. It's ridiculous. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to Google it now. It's going to have a quick, yeah, Google quick, it up. quick look. So P A T double O, right? And uh, it's that oh, owl, owl in Jamaica. Got really, really big eyes. It's just scary looking, ugly thing. Oh fuck! Fucking <laughs> 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 look at go. that! Look that's, at that! That's, yeah, <laughs> he's a happy. He's a happy dude. <laughs> nah, I, I generally don't show people those photos. <laughs> okay. Oh man. Um, that's funny. That's funny. Uh, now we met for the first time uh, towards the end of last year um, yeah. when we were recording the 100th episode of the podcast, actually, and it was mm. it was um, it was like a bass player's hang, um, and we were talking about Jacko Pistorius, and there was myself, Adam Ventura, Mark yeah. Costa, Victor Rounds, and, and Steve Hunter, and um, yeah, 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 man, and we were in that that. Um, first floor room and and you you came and hung out with us at the end there it was cool cool to meet you man well funny second live gig i ever saw was jacko is that right yeah oh what's your jacko we can get to that later yeah that was um i went to see weather report yep and i didn't know anything about them didn't know what they were like nothing yep and and i went i was 17 and it just blew my shit completely, you know. It's, it's, I didn't know how to describe it, how to understand it. Nothing. I was just blown away. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And Jacko was a bass player. Yeah. You know, unbelievable. Yeah. I met Joe Zawinul about thirty odd years later oh, and wow. thanked him because it kind of changed the course of my musical life. Right. You know, seeing that gig. You know. In in what way? Did it change? Did it make you go and listen to different types of music? That yeah, kind of it, music? it opened me up to to jazz. Yeah, 
you know, um, and as much as I love other stuff, mm. um, jazz plays plays a big part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool, man. Um, now, yeah, I I said well, so jazz how, funk, yeah. jazz funk, right, right. Yeah. Um, how have you been? I mean, there haven't been gigs on. So, what have you been? What have you been doing? Um, I've still been recording. Yep. So I've done five tracks for the UK. Mm-hmm three of them for a charitable organization yep. and two for a band based in Swindon, like mm. a rock steady reggae band. Mm-hmm. And then the other things have been kind of um, uh, remakes of glam rock tracks, you know, Oh wow! Um, which is really funny. Yeah. Um, so where does your, where does your voice sort of fit into that? Um, that's, a, that's really, that's a really interesting combination. Well, you know, your 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 deep soul voice yeah. in the glam glam rock track, you know, because when well, you think when I think glam rock, I, I'm thinking of you know White Snake and and yeah. like really, you know. Well, I I, I did a remake of um, Ballroom Blitz right mm. by the Sweet, right? Mm-hmm. So of course I don't sound anything like those guys, right? <laughs> so for me to do it, I've got to find a way to put my character in it but have fun with it and still keep the, the, the vibe that it's, that it's got. Yep. So where I went was I went more kind of Rocky horror picture show. So okay. if you can imagine um, riff raff, yeah. I kind of went like that way. So it was semi theatrical, um, a little over the top, but then it meant that I could use my voice and still sing the song, you know? Yeah. Right. But with a different slight a different vibe but with the same end result yeah um you said you know a bit before um we hit record and we'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit later on um and i know you did um you know you're part of the session scene and do, doing voiceovers and that kind of yeah. stuff um and bvs on on different things yeah is that is that always kind of been your way of approaching those sort of things like almost trying to find a character to get into to no no just that i know who i am you know who i am good on you i know who i am awesome and i've known who i am for a long time fantastic but i love singing yeah and i don't care if i'm doing backing vocals or lead yeah um i like vocal harmonies yeah so i like the idea of lots of voices Mm -hmm. um if i don't have the voices to use then i'll layer them myself yeah but uh, I really enjoy voices and the voice. Yeah. Um, but I also am a great believer in being versatile. Mm-hmm. Just because I love soul and I love blues and I love reggae yep. doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to sing country, rock, For sure. pop. And, you know, I, in my mind, if you're a singer worth your salt, you should be able to sing anything. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. All right, let's uh let's roll back to your childhood and how it all began and where you originally came from and and let's sort of work our way, you know, into music and 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 then okay. to this point. So can you tell us where you were? Yeah, you well, were my parents my parents left Jamaica and went to England, mm-hmm. and I was their first child born in England. Mm-hmm. So I've got two older sisters that were born in Jamaica. And myself and a younger sister born in England. I was born in the south of England. My little sister was born in the north. Yep. So you're from you're from Bristol, is that right? Did I read yeah. that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell us a little bit like what um what Bristol was like. 
Bristol. Good growing growing um, up and, and, and explain a little bit of... Um, I, I lived in an area that was very close to the city, so it was very okay. multicultural. Yep. So lots of West Indians. So, I mean, like, I didn't really have to deal with anybody but Jamaicans for pretty much the first five years of my life. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to primary school, that's when you started mixing with other people. Okay. But the primary school I went to, it had kind of Italians, Polish, Hungarians, people from every island in the West Indies, literally, a mm. um, few Africans. And then there were mixed race kids mm. in amongst that. There were, there were half whatever. Um, so we kind of all grew up together. Most of those kids from our primary school, I'm still friends with now. Mm. You know, we still communicate. Um, when I go back, we we hook up. And we had each other's backs as well. Mm. So because there was a certain amount of kind of racism and difficulties back in the UK back then. Mm. Um, so I grew up in a, in a neighbourhood where, you know, like I, I often had to use my fist to solve a problem, mm. you know, but um, I loved sports and I loved music. So I generally kept myself busy doing that mm. to avoid getting in trouble. So say of the guys that I grew up with, half of us went on to college or university or learned some kind of trade or skill and did, did well. And the other half in and out of jail. Okay. Right. But because we all grew up together, there's no issue when we meet, you know what I mean? It's like the, the guy that was, you know, a thief was a thief. And I accepted the fact that he was a thief when I see him, we'd eat food and drink and chase women, you know, and all the rest of it. And then when it was time for him to go thieving, he'd go that way, I'd go the other, you know? Yeah. yeah. What What's the main sort of industry in Bristol or, or what was it at that stage? Okay. Um, the main industry in, in Bristol at that stage, it was always a port. Okay. So it was very famous. So its main industry initially was the slave trade. So that was the first big port to bring African slaves through and onwards and there's there's areas in some of the caves in the cliffs around Clifton and that mm. where the chains are still there where they used to chain up oh, the slaves you know so that's pretty heavy mm. um but it's the center of the aircraft industry um so British aircraft corporations there Rolls-Royce engines are there mm. um it's the center of the um microchip industry for the UK as well. Mm. Um, there's also the Bristol car, which is a handmade aluminium car, is made there. Mm. Um, they make like six a year, you know, so it's yeah, like right. Aston Martin okay. kind of vibe, you know. Mm. I've seen one in this country and I've been here 40 years. Yeah, wow. So it's, it's, it's always been high tech, but it's also country because it's close it's not a big city. When I left, it was like maybe a million people. Mm. So you could get out into the country in like 20, 25 minutes easily, you know? A bit like when I first came here, you know, you mm. kind of like you hit Cabramatta, go down Cab Pasture Road, you know, half of it was country. Yeah. You know, not now. Yeah. But um, well, when I came to Australia from New Zealand in yeah. the mid 90s, once you got because I'm in, I live in Northmead, Parramatta yeah, sort of not, area. Yeah. Um, and to head out towards Windsor, 
once yeah. you got once you got to Norwest, it was a single single country road either way, yeah, yeah. in and out of uh, well, out of Windsor. That, Look at it now. It was, Some... it was it was country way closer before yeah, that. Was yeah, like, yeah. Ma- yeah. Marion was bush. Yeah, right. Right. You know, when yep. I came here, it was yep. bush. Yep. They were only just starting to build there, you know? Yeah. So the whole of the Hills District was bush. It was like nurseries and yep. market gardens and, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, Bristol's home of Blackbeard the Pirate, I read. Yep. That's cool. But it's, but it's also the home of, um, you know, the Wild Bunch. And out of the Wild Bunch, you got Massive Attack. So Daddy G and I grew up in the same house. Wow. Right? So our mothers are very close friends. I went to school with Daddy G's older sister, because mm-hmm. I'm older than him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like we know each other well. Um, there was uh, there's Smith and Mighty came out of there. Portishead isn't in Bristol, but it's just down the road. It's just okay. on the coast, you know. So do, do, um, do people call Portishead do they do they pull it into Bristol? No, so no, no. Portishead okay. is Portishead. Uh, okay, right. Um, and Bristol, Bristol's got enough stuff going for itself. It doesn't need to pull anything else. In, okay, you know, yep. um, Tricky's from Bristol. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's you know, there's enough. Like I said, there's enough enough stuff there. Like um, I think there's um, Nelly Hooper um, from Bristol that ended up in Soul to Soul or worked with um, Soul to Soul. And uh, who else was out of there? Um, oh, it'll come to me. Yeah, but good. there was a, a particular nightclub called The Dugout. I used to DJ there before Daddy G and Ronnie Size and, and Tricky DJed there because I was older than them. Mm-hmm. And there were guys that were DJing there before me mm-hmm. that, that set that pace you know and the guys that i dj'd with um three of us formed a a vocal group ended up with a five-man vocal group in bristol um around about uh 76 around about there 75 76 and we did kind of motown covers you know so four tops temptations um uh, uh, Gladys Knight songs, you know, so we did stuff like that. But I I started drumming when I was nine and I was learning for like 10 years. I did that for until I was 19. And then I stopped and I started singing. And the main reason was because at the time I couldn't sing and drum at the same time. I'm like, I can I can do it now. I can do backing vocals now and drum, but my drumming chops are gone because I haven't played for like 30 odd years, except for a couple of gigs that I've done in the last two years, no, three years, mm. where if Declan Kelly's on the gig, you'll go, oh, Pat, get on the kit, yeah. you know, and, and I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm holding a groove, but I'm too afraid to play a fill and yeah. too afraid to leave the groove, you know? Yeah. But um, nothing wrong with that. No, no, nothing wrong with it's that fun. It's a lot of fun for sure. But it freaks me out because I don't yeah. want to. I don't want to lose it. But it's something that you know, like if I if I had a kit and I, I got back into practicing again, it would be it would be a nice thing to do. Yeah, cool. But I love singing too much. Yeah, that's yeah, the problem. that's cool. Let's um just roll back a little bit 
before mm. um before the DJ thing and and yeah. talk about music and your family. Did, was your mother and father musical or your your siblings? Not not really. I got an uncle that was a drummer. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather played harmonica and banjo. Mum uh, and dad could both sing, but they did generally didn't. I only heard my dad sing once, and I was blown away. Um, but they both they met dancing. Dancing was their thing. So there's always music because they needed music to dance to, um, and my ear lent towards the singers. Having said that, I love a good instrumental just as much as I love a good vocal track. So, you know, mm. it's if the music moves me, music or no music, it moves me. That's it, done. Mm. When was the moment that you decided that you wanted to be a singer? You know what? I spent most years thinking I want to be a drummer. Ah, then right. when I hit 19... Yep. I um I got an invite with some guys that I used to DJ with that said I'll oh, come along and have a jam, and I had such a good time. I went okay, I'm going to give this a shot. But I still never thought seriously about it at that time. You know. Yep. Now um, I I ended up leaving England, and that's when I got serious about singing. Really, mm. you know, when I was in England. Um, you know, I grew up in the days when it was like, learn a trade, son, you'll be fine for life. And so I did that and, and music was a thing you did on the side, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I didn't do enough gigs on the side to, to make me kind of think any more of it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't easy to get a gig anyway in in the UK back then, Mm. you know? Um, so it wasn't until I left and I went to West Germany that um, that changed, you know. But, you know, it's, it's um, there were key gigs that I saw in, in England that, that obviously planted seeds in my head, you know what I mean, where I didn't, didn't understand that at the time maybe and I didn't realise how much of a hook that was going to end up being. Mm. But I can remember, you know, like those kind of light bulb moments where you see a show and you just go, oh, my God, that's incredible. Mm. You know, it just, and I, I was speechless. I didn't know what to do. And it was it was too big for me to go, I want to be like that or I want to do that. Or it was just, wow, you know, this is amazing. Mm. So, you know, I mean, yeah, and I saw some, I saw some pivotal gigs. Just uh, so you, you talked about doing a trade first because I was very much on that side of things too and that's how my mum and dad brought me up. They said, if you want to yeah. go and do other things, you yeah. do that after, but it's trade first and it yeah, was like yeah. that for for me and both my brothers. Yeah. Um, what was that trade that you that you did? I'm a first-class welder by trade. Yeah, right. So I've got City and Guilds of London. Yep. And I've got an R4 in welding from West Germany. Mm-hmm. And I also did um, steel steel fabrication and um, oh, yeah, well, steel fabrication. Yep. But um, I did atomic hydrogen welding, mm. TIG welding, 
MIG welding, stick welding, vertical overhead, you name it, I did it. Mm. The only thing I never did was underwater. Underwater, right. Which I wanted to do. Yeah. You know, and I've worked on massive projects in Europe, um, here. I worked on all the... um, all the big turbine blades for the Electricity Commission mm. um, in the early, early 80s, I built all of them. Mm. Oh, that's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you talked about those pivotal gigs. Yeah. Um, so can you name name those? And Okay. The first one, Stevie Wonder. Okay. So that was 1968. Yep. And uh, I was 10. And my mother was a psychiatric nurse Mm -hmm. and I knew that she could get patients. If we took patients to a gig, we could get free tickets. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I convinced my mom (laughs) to get us to take. So we took five patients that wouldn't have known where they were Yep, because they were all severely ill and in wheelchairs. Yep. And we wheeled them in to the front of the stage <laughs> and watched Stevie Wonder blow me away. Right. You know, it was like, that was, and I didn't know he played so many instruments. Okay. So I knew about the harmonica, I knew about keyboards. Yep. And then at one point he gets up and he goes around to the drum kit and I'm yeah. just like, oh my God, you know, yep. and he plays drums too. Yep. You know, it was, it was, it was mind blowing. It really was. Never forgotten. It never will. Yep. Um, then after that, I saw um, uh, Weather Report. Mm. So it was a long time before I saw another gig. So it's like what, eleven years or something like that. You know, oh, maybe not that long. Mm. Seven, seven years before I saw another gig, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I see weather report that blew me away because I just didn't know what was going on. Yeah. It was like you got this monster bass player, you got this nutcase keyboard player, yeah. you know, you got Wayne Shorter. Yeah. You know, it was just an incredible band, you know, it was Alex Acuna, Ayrton Morales, you know, it was mind blowing, mind blowing. So then after that, I saw. Um, <laughs> Earth, Wind and Fire supporting Santana. Right. <laughs> that was like Earth, Wind and Fire blew Santana off the stage and no one had seen a show like it. Right. You know, it was like you're in the dark and then you just hear this throbbing bass and you're just going, oh, my God, this is this is pumping. And then the lights slowly come up. There's nobody on stage. <laughs> right. And like. And then all of a sudden the lights come up a bit more and Verdi and White is floating in midair, right? <laughs> Just hammering the bass. And then he floats down to the stage and the band come out. Oh, that was, it was something else, you know? Awesome. And like Santana were just lame in comparison. Yeah. And they were not a bad band. They were a huge band at that time. Yeah. Then I saw, um, let's see, then I saw an Atlantic label road show so that was harold melvin and the blue notes the jimmy castor bunch um benny king and sister sledge mm. right and that was like four hours of complete joy yeah. right? 
That was mind blowing. And then the last gig I saw in England before I left was the Parliament Earth Tour, which was Parlay, Brides of Funkenstein, Funkadelic, and then Parliament. That was four hours. Yeah. Right? It was, again, uh, we hired a coach from Bristol and drove up to London, saw them at the Hammersmith Odeon, and, and they tore the roof off that sucker. They really did. Yeah. You know, yeah. Unbelievable gig. Yeah. Did you still have drummer's eyes at that stage, or were you sort of starting to? I think I was starting to think more of singing. Yep. Right. By the time I hit Parliament, I was definitely leaning more to towards singing. Yep. You know. Um, so I was nineteen, or yeah, nineteen, I think. So I saw all of those guys. Then I went to Germany. And uh, <coughs> I had a, a cousin there that wanted to p- put a band together. So he played bass. I sang and we found a few, you know, expat Brits, some West Indian, some Welsh, some English, whatever. And we put a, a reggae band together in Germany and did really well, you know, did a few gigs. Mm. Um, and then I, I entered a, a vocal competition which i won it's the only vocal competition i've ever entered i'll probably never enter another one yeah but um i won it and at the end of the night i got the prize and a guy comes up and he says i want to manage you and i went yeah sure um so two weeks later i was gigging with a dance group so i had two girls two guys dancing behind me while i sang you know but you sang to playbacks you know, so I left the band because I could make more money doing this, you know. Yep, yep. And um, you would do like two, three gigs on a Saturday night. Mm. So I was still working as a welder in Germany, but mm. working weekends. And, and each gig would be in a different town. But, you know, you only did a one-hour spot. So you did your spot, bolted to the next gig, did that, bolted to the next gig, did that, and you made a shitload of dough. Mm. So it was a really, really good time. And then... Gigs I saw there, I saw Billy Cobham there. I saw Stevie Wonder again. Mm. I saw the Hotter Than July tour. Mm. Um, I saw Stan Getz. That was great. Um, I saw Peter Tosh and I saw Bob Marley. Cool. Yeah. So that's all before I came to, to Australia. Yeah. And I think the first... Year or two that I was here, I didn't see anybody because there was nowhere for them to play, really. Like the entertainment center hadn't been built at that point. Yep. So what um, what made you come to Australia? Stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> um, some people call it love. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Anyway, okay. <laughs> All right, so you you um you get here. Were you seeking out a welding job straight away, or were you you thinking I'm going to try and give music a, a full time crack at this stage? Well, at this stage, I've now been singing in Germany, yeah. right? Yep. So I don't want to weld anymore, really. Okay. But my trade papers are what got me into Australia because they they didn't want want singers; they wanted 
They wanted skills that they didn't have. And I had skills that they didn't have. So I, um, I came out here on that. I worked for about 10 months and then got a band together and started playing. And that was that. So I arrived, um, 5th of June, 1981. And then I did my first gig, I think 3rd of December that year. Right. And I kept working for maybe another four months and then stopped. Mm. And I just did music full time. Okay. Yeah. What was the scene like here in the eighties? Amazing. Yep. Like the pub rock scene was, um, was amazing. It was literally every pub was a gig mm-hmm. in every state almost. And, um, and the radio stations supported and promoted the live pub rock scene. So you, you got booked for a gig and you went there, you did it, you got a following, you know? So I was playing to like 3000 people at Selena's in the mid eighties, you know, and getting like I got paid better back then than I do now. Yeah. Right. And a, a whole lot of musicians, everyone that you saw, that you spoke to when I wrote, walked into your podcast at Lazy Bones would tell you the same thing. We were all earning better money back then and treated better in a lot of respects. Um, it, it's a weird thing, but like the venues and the clubs back then were probably all owned by criminals, mm-hmm. right? So as long as you had a blind eye and you didn't see anything, yep. it was fine, but you got paid well and you got taken care of. And then that all got cleaned up. <clears throat> And it became corporate. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, the corporates are worse. Mm. They don't treat us with anywhere near the respect that we used to get treated by so say bad people. Mm. But, you know, the difference between the two, the corporate and the crims, it's not that great. It's not that big. Mm. Not from a performer's point of view. Yep. Yep. I understand. I do understand. Yeah. Um, so you, the band that you put together originally when you got here, what, kind of music were you guys you talked about pub rock were you going into the into the pubs to play yeah, I, was into the pubs. I was playing reggae you play reggae mostly. right okay yeah because what happened was i ran into a couple of guys and uh funny enough I, i'll tell you how my first band came about it was weird i went i got a free ticket to go and see ub40 right at uh i think the horton pavilion right and I liked UB40's first two albums, didn't really like them after that. Anyway, so this is a little while later, not blown away. Jojo Zepp and the Falcons were the support band, didn't think much of them at all. Um, So I'm walking out and I see another black guy, he's from Fiji, he's a bass player. So we connect. He introduces me to a Barbadian singer and we become friends, you know, because of that Caribbean connection. Meet up a couple of times and we exchange numbers, leave it at that. One day I'm at the Barclays Cinema in George Street City, which doesn't exist anymore, watching the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I'm sitting there in the dark watching the movie and then there's an intermission and they're playing all this great jazz funk that I love in the intermission that I haven't heard anywhere since I've been here. Yeah. So I've been here about two months at that point. Right? Um, 
some guy comes up and says, excuse me, Mr. Powell, there's a phone call for you. And I'm like, <laughs> shit, you know, I don't know anybody, you know? Yeah. So I get up, I go into the office of the cinema and my partner ring, has rung and she says, oh, look, there's a party going on in Newtown and Ronnie, who you met, wants you to go there. He wants you to meet some people. I went, okay. And I went, how did this guy know her? And she said, oh, she rang him up and said, look, you know, I need to get a message to my partner. And he said, there's 300 people in here. How could I possibly know? She said, he's black. And he said, I know exactly where he's sitting. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was rare back then. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I go to this party and everyone in the band that I first put together is at at this party. And we rehearse for a little while, do a couple of odd gigs. And then the first kind of paid gig is 3rd of December, you know, and then we played together for years Mm. and then I moved on and joined a couple of other bands, you know, but um, I was, I was um, always into doing different things and various things. I was, I never wanted to be pigeonholed and locked down, which didn't help me in the eighties. Okay. It, It was fine in the live scene, but it wasn't great with um, recording. Mm. People wanted you to do one thing, you know. Okay. It would be like, what are you into? I like it all. No, 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 no. You got to uh, pick okay. one and focus yeah. on that. We need the we need the reggae guy on the books. We need the soul yeah. guy on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I understand. But you can't be all of them. Yeah. Right. Far out. Yeah. Um, anyway, what was the reggae scene like? That that around that Healthy. time. Healthy. Okay. There were there were a few good bands around. There was Untabu, which were around before I got there, and then there was Calabash. I had a band called Carib. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another band called Shango. There was UB Forty Two, um, but there were other other reggae bands around as well. And reggae and and also there were all the ska bands that had copied the two tone thing, which I had missed because. That didn't happen until after I left England. Okay. And I lived in Germany and two-tone didn't happen in England. And then it got to Australia. So you had the all-nighters and the strange tenants and the leftovers and all of these ska bands. So ska and reggae was party music in Sydney. And it was in Melbourne, in key parts of Melbourne as mm-hmm. well. So it was just party music. People would get down and go nuts, especially to the ska because they related more to that um, up tempo vibe than uh, the slower reggae, mm. but um, we used to have these. Uh, we used to have the Caribbean nights. Um, well, it was the Afro Caribbean nights initially at um, Paddington Town Hall, and we'd pack it out, mm. you know. And then we used to have like Sunday afternoon sessions in a church hall in Surrey Hills. So, you know, there was music everywhere. Yeah. Music everywhere. Yeah. Um let's talk about how you got into that that uh studio, that session, that session scene. Um do you remember uh, that you remember that that first session and, and You know what? The I can't remember how I got the first session. Okay. But the first session was actually for an ad, mm-hmm. a jingle, right? And I'm doing the lead vocal, but the woman doing the backing vocals is a woman by the name of Vanetta Fields. 
and I knew who Vanetta Fields was, and I was like, you know, starstruck, you know. <laughs> and she was cool as just going, hey, look, you know, it don't mean a thing, relax, you know. This is a woman that sung with Ray Charles and was an Iket, and, you know, just like, and she was um, Johnny Farnham's backing vocalist forever, you know. It was just consummate professional, amazing singer. And I'm in there and I'm going, they've got this the wrong way around. It should be her. And, <laughs> you know, but she, she put me at ease and made me okay. So that, that was my first session was a jingle for some ad, you know. In, in the heyday of that sort of session, yeah. session stage, how many sessions a week do you reckon you're doing? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I would do six gigs a week without thinking twice about it. Yep. And in a month, that there'd be like one or two sessions. Okay. You know? Okay. So, so well, I'm just, I'm just trying to yeah. paint a picture. So, so the sessions were like, um, initially, it was all either backing vocals. I did a lot of backing vocals for Sony Music female artists. Okay. So, you know, so I got used for that. Um, and then I, I did jingles for ads and stuff like that, you know, where I'd be often part of an ensemble. I wasn't often the lead in that, but I often did ensemble stuff. But I did do some co-lead stuff with Mark Williams, who you'd know. Mm-hmm. I don't know Mark personally. Oh, I, I've, well, you I've, know of him. I've, yeah, I've been in touch yeah. with him and trying to get him to come on the show. So, But Mark is a beautiful, beautiful yep. cat, yep. beautiful singer. Yep. And... Um, he was big at the time with a band called Boy Rockin', mm-hmm. and um, but when he first, when I first saw him, he was doing backing vocals for Rene Gare, and he was amazing. Yep. You know, it was like just. But um, we did Levi's did a series of ads where they were redoing Motown songs, mm. and Mark and I were the two voices used to replicate. The Temptations or the Four Tops or whatever. So we covered all of that stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. Um, let's. I mean, you, you've um, you know, you've gone on to play with lots of you know world class international type artists and stuff. Yeah. And the the first one I, I'm um want to ask you about was um touring with Kylie Minogue. A dream. Yeah. And and what's and, and I'm curious what stage of her career because you know she's had different sort of right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Okay. Like locomotion very, locomotion type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I did right. the that, first I did yeah, the wow. first Australian tour. Okay. And then I did the first world tour. Right. Was that your first um experience at touring? Um, well, internationally, internationally, yes. yeah. I mean, besides, yeah, yeah. you know, you've, you've yeah, obviously yeah. been around yourself. So, so I've been touring Australia for years at that point, right? Um, and how I got the gig, I got the gig because of her boyfriend, which was Michael Hutchins at the time. Okay. So I didn't audition for it. You know, it was just like, Pat, do you want to do this gig? Right. I was like, oh yeah. So we we had a meeting at a friend's house, and there was Kylie and Michael and another. Another guy, Greg Pirano, that used to play for Hunters and Collectors and had a band up here called The Deadly Hume. So we met at his place and we sorted out what what they wanted to do. My only opinion was, do I have to do exactly what's on the record? And they said, no, and I went, okay, I'm in. Okay. 
So, but got well treated, did some amazing gigs. Um, I initially, um, when we did the overseas tour, um, we were only going to do eight gigs. We ended up doing 28. Right. Right. And is that because it just kept building as? Yeah, yeah, it just kept building. As you went, so it kept let's building book some as more. it let's went on. Some, yeah, yeah, wow. So I was away for like four months. That doesn't really ha- that well, not well, nothing happens at the moment. But um, I, I, I guess uh, I'll tell you what it was. Yep. What it was was nobody had any faith in her, right? Because she hadn't done a gig. Okay. Right. What I'm going to say about Kylie is Kylie's not my favorite singer. Yeah. But she's a really hard worker. Mm-hmm. You know, because my favorite singers are like Aretha Franklin and Gladys Knight. And so there's no comparisons, just stupid. But she sings well and she puts a lot of work in. If there's something that she didn't know, she would ask you because everybody else in the band had more experience than her. Two, three days, she'd be doing whatever it was you told her. So she's dancing, she's singing, and she, she's doing a really good job. And she sings in key live, and that's all I care about, you know. So we would do an a cappella duet in her show, you know, because a lot of people would say, well, you know, what's she like? She says, okay. Like she's not, you know, it's you either like Kylie or you don't, right? And as a person, she's wonderful, beautiful, beautiful person. Um, but it, it's it's like you got to see the gig for what it is. I'm there as a backing vocalist, right? My job is to make her sound better. End of story. And it doesn't matter whether it's her or anybody else. You know, you go in there with your best, your best voice and you make that person sound as good as they can possibly sound by, you know, like I've got a big voice, so I've got to pull back with someone that doesn't have a voice as big as me. But it's not my job to outshine the front person. It's my job to support and enhance the front person. And, it, and if you do that, one, there's, there's a, you know, kind of a, a sense of professional pride that you get from doing that, from being able to do that. But also you, you stay in work because if you're overshadowing the lead person, they don't book you again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's 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 not, it's it's about taking care of business, you know, and and the business. When I'm singing lead, then I'm singing lead, you know. And I got to do that in her show because she would do a costume change, and I got to go out there and do a little spot for me, which was fantastic. It was good for me at the time. Mm. That's that's cool. What opportunities came? came from that tour then because i'm sure so you see that oh cool man yeah that's cool yeah that's really cool i had the booty (laughs) Uh, um what opportunities came to you from that tour what um to to be honest most gigs that i did for the next 20 years have all been influenced in some degree by the fact that I did that tour, you know? 
And also, you know, like the other tours and the other people that I work with have enhanced that, but all of them have been at some point enhanced by, by doing that tour. You know what I mean? Like, man, I played Wembley with it, you know? It's like, you can't take that away. You know, three times, not once. Yeah. Now your uh, your voice. Have you ever been classically trained at all? Ever been to lessons, or is it just something that's always come natural and you've you've uh, work, worked up lucky. yourself? Just luck. Okay. Just lucky, you know. Mm-hmm. You got what you got. Mm-hmm. But no, nah, I never got trained or anything like that. I did some um, voice kind of. Um, voice therapy classes for a little while but i did about five of those but i've never i've never had formal singing lessons was that that, that was that by choice wanting to do it or you just yeah, trying to maintain yeah, yeah. or was there an issue with your no, voice no, it was about taking yep. better care of your throat okay yep and do you still um take any benefits from from those from that little short course that you did on, on that therapy? Um, or did you think, ah, oh, no, I'm, I'm good? No, no, look, you know, you retain stuff. Yeah. Because some of it just becomes part of your daily routine. It becomes automatic, right? So, I mean, like, I don't do exercises every day or anything like that. I've been singing nonstop now for over 40 years, right? So there's a certain kind of thing that just happens. But I do do warm-ups if I haven't been doing stuff for a while. I'll warm up a little bit before a gig, but I don't do anything massive. I don't do, you know, like an hour of nothing. You know, it's like a warm-up for me is humming, you know, on the way to the gig, you know, like I'll hum any song that comes on the radio or that I'm playing, you know. And by the time I get to the gig, I'm warmed up and I'm fine. But um, I also, every now and again, I teach. And when you teach, that's when I kind of maybe, you go back to basics, especially when you're teaching beginners. So I have to show them what I expect from them. I know exactly what you you mean. So so that by default keeps me rooted, keeps me on ground level. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it a kick in the ass? Because I I taught drums for a while. and um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and, and, And the whole teaching gig it came as a total surprise to me i was in my local music store and the owner there mm. he had a studio up the top yeah. and we'd played some gigs together mm. and he said do you want to teach and i'm like what teach uh yeah <laughs> okay yeah. so then you've got to go away and you need to you need to um work through what you know and yeah. come up with a way yeah. to explain it and um and I, and i was teaching um students to read as well so i had to go back yeah. and work on my reading and you really need to know well, your own shit, don't you? <laughs> I'm with you. I, it's like, look, I never have to read. And when I did learn to read, it was drum music, yep. which is different. It is. You know, yep. So there's no chords, nothing in there, you know, no notes. So it was like, okay, don't have to do that anymore. And then I would just learn songs by rote, you know? So now, you know, like if I've got to do a song by sheet music, it would be horrible because I would be, I'll get there, but it's so slow. I'd be, I'd be like, you know, the band would be finished before I got to the first bar, you know, 
So it's just, I don't even, I don't bother. I'm like, there's a side of me that thinks, oh, look, you know, I should go back and learn how to read again and practice it. But it's like, why? Yeah. I don't need to. Yeah. So if somebody came up to you and said, can you just hum me an A? Do you reckon, you reckon you'd be, you'd be close? Nah, man. <laughs> Like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I have people way more qualified than me okay. come up and say really nice, nice things about me. I I don't sing off key and I don't, no, no, no. you know, stuff like that. But um, once I've got my first note, I don't need the band. I, I understand. I know what you're saying. You know, I'm yeah, yeah. fine after that. It's just so, it's those cats that have the perfect pitch, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cats have perfect pitch usually make a big deal about having perfect pitch. And I think that's great, you know, but, you know, move me. <laughs> that's it, eh? Move me. Yeah, move me. You know? <laughs> it's like I was in the car today and Steely Dan came on. I switched yeah. the radio off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a Steely Dan fan. Aren't you? Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. They're soulless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're technically great. Technically great. But they're yeah. soulless. Yeah, that's it. I, after that, know, you, after that 30th take, you know, what I mean, it's like Parliament, Steely Dan, yeah, James Brown, Steely Dan, Stevie Wonder, Steely Dan, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, yep, Steely Dan loses, yeah, gotcha, for me, gotcha, you know. And I, I have a whole bunch of friends that every now and again we do a gig, and I go, Oh, you went to the Steely Dan school of fun, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> And they look at me like, what? And I go, man, nah, dude, man, like, yeah. I want to hear you play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> like... oh, that's funny. Um, let's talk about the 90s in yeah. in Sydney. I, I know from, you know, from 95 onwards um, mm. what the scene was like because I was part of the scene. Mm. Um, that early, the early 90s, what was that like here? Well, the early 90s, um, you kind of have to start in about 88, 89, because yeah. what happened was dance music was starting to come into America, uh, into here, you know, from America. So there was like dance, there was house and techno and all yep. this stuff starting to come in and hip hop. Yeah. So there was a band here called Love Town. And uh, their first singer was a guy named Miguel Ayesa. And he ended up doing musical theater. He now lives in the States. He's doing really, really well. And uh, I, I came in after him. Um, so Love Town was Sydney's first hip-hop band, right? The guitarist and the bass player were the, the driving force of that band. Now, the guitarist was Carl Dimataga, who went on to become um, Guy Sebastian's MD. Like, he's a monster guitarist, great producer, unbelievable. The bass player was Steve Mostyn. Steve Mostyn went on to um, end up in America. He lives in America now. And he um, played for a couple of years with a gospel guy. I think his name is Chris Thomas. And Chris Thomas won, a, won an award or a Grammy or something. Okay. But then he ended up being um, Alicia Keys touring bass player and producer. So a couple of years ago, he got nominated for... Grammys for Alicia Keys, J-Lo, and somebody else. Okay. You know, I'd say he's a monster. And then he came back a couple of years ago and got, he was married before, he got divorced, got remarried in Sydney, and I sang at his wedding. So, you know. Yeah, wow. But Steve, Steve Mostyn's a monster. Carl's a monster. 
Is he is he a is he a white guy? Who? Steve Mostyn? Yeah. 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 So he must have been actually yeah. I Yeah. Um me and my wife uh went and saw Alicia Keys perform here in Sydney. It must have Yeah, been, he would have been playing bass. He was playing bass, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember going. Big guy with tattoos. Oh, I, I, like we were sort of up the top. Yeah, but I, yeah, I, I remember seeing him and then um, going away and googling him afterwards. And, and he's from yeah, here, from from yeah. Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a he's an amazing bass player. Yep. You know, so we've just been reminiscing in the last week. You know, oh, that's cool. Of, of stuff we did. You know, we had a um, a South African rapper that tragically. Um, died under suspicious circumstances at a train station. Mm. He, he got hit by a train and, um, you know, it's believed he was thrown. Oh, okay. You know, in an altercation or something like that, but we don't know for sure. Mm. But he's gone and the band kind of broke up after that. Mm. But um, so I got into that scene. Um, I also had always hung around with the blues guys. So bands like Bondi Cigars and the Hippos and, you know, so I would go to a blues jam, sing a couple of blues gigs and then run off to do my hip hop gig, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this transition that was happening between say 89. So 89, I've done Kylie's first tour. 1990, I go overseas with Kylie. I come, I come back and I'm in a band called, or an act called Ten Wedge, which is the three-man vocal group. And it oh, was, yeah, I saw one of your videos the other day. And it's yep. Australia's first three-man okay. vocal group, you know. Yep. So that hadn't been done or seen before here, you know. So I did that. Um, but I'm still in ska bands, funk bands, and yeah. reggae bands while I'm doing all of that. But Tim Wedge was doing most of the work, okay. right? And Love Town was doing hip-hop as well. Love Town was probably gone by about 93, you know, uh, you know, 94 maybe. It was all over. Mm-hmm. I left them. Um, Ten Wedge kept going from... Uh, probably 90 to about 95. And then um, what had happened in that transition was a lot of hotels started to turn into restaurants, you know, so a lot of gigs disappeared. So the big kind of pub rock scene with the big barn venues that had 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people, they were starting to disappear, Mm. right? Um, Tim Wedge was able to perform in a nightclub mm. as well as the venues. So some of the um, supports that we did were like the chimes that we did at Selena's in front of 3,000 people. That was in a venue. And then we did like Prince's after party at Metropolis in Sydney, you know, in North Sydney, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you go from rock heads to club heads, you know, right. and perform in both venues. So so we weathered that transition really well. A lot of musicians didn't do too well because DJs were starting to come into prominence 
where a, a, a DJ would be able to um, take over a Friday or a Saturday night in a venue, yep. which was obviously cheaper the, for the venue than a band yep. and less hassle. So that's where they went. So bands were starting to get less and less gigs and a three-piece vocal band could go anywhere. Yep. So that's kind of how I survived through the 90s was doing the vocal the vocal group thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also at the same time, I'd gotten, I'd gone from doing jingles in the 80s to doing more voiceovers. And voiceovers actually pay better anyway. So I, I was kind of better off mm. doing that. Mm. All right, let's talk about 2000s then. 2000s. Well, the changes there, you know, like I'm not gigging as much and I'm teaching more. Um, Still doing lots of voiceovers, but uh, the teaching is um, I'm teaching at King Kids, which is um, King Kids. Most of their kids ended up on things like um, East Street and Home and Away and stuff like that, but they needed to have a a rounded kind of balance repertoire. They needed to be able to sing, dance, and act. And then um, I went from there to Brent Street, and Brent Street is, like, big time. You know, it was um, uh, uh, who did Hey Hey at Saturday? Um, Daryl Summers. Daryl Summers. It was his wife's. Um, business. Okay. She started that. Um, I think it started as Dynamite Studios and then it turned into Brent Street and then she sold it and other people took it over and I worked for them. Um, so I did that for a little while. That's, um, like, a, that's like an academy or like a performing. Yeah, arts. yeah, it's definitely okay. an academy. And they're, they're based at Fox Studios now. So they're, they're at, um, or the Entertainment Quarter or whatever it is, but it's there now. But, uh, yeah, I, I taught for them for a while. And uh, I set up the vocal course at a place called the Learning Lounge in Taramar. Yep. I, I did that for three years. Um, still gigged, but I was teaching when I was gigging because I was a single dad at the t- time, so I couldn't really gig as much as I – I couldn't tour. I could gig in Sydney, but I couldn't tour because I had a little daughter to look after. Yep. Um, so, cause my daughter was born in 97. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so touring kind of took a bit of a back step. Um, I'm still gigging, but primarily in Sydney and not really going anywhere other than maybe up the coast a bit to Newcastle or, you know, a bit further and back. And that was about it. Might go up to Byron now and again, but, uh, that was it. You know, so it was it was certainly by then, by the 2000s, I, I'd be relegated to doing maybe three gigs a week. Okay. As opposed to six or seven. Okay. <clears throat> um, when did you record your first album? Um, when I was looking on Spotify, it's got, it's got 2013, but I'm not, I, I'm, I, I don't. The, the, I, the I t- first album that I did was 2003. Three, okay. And that was a jazz album. Okay. Called King Powell. Okay. Because sometimes on Spotify they'll 
Yeah. Have an album on there and it'll have a date on it, but it, no. <laughs> it might be. So two, 2003 okay. was King Powell's a jazz duet album. Okay. And then the next album that I did for me was um, 2018, right, which is called um, About Time. Now, in between that, there are albums by the protesters. There's two albums by the protesters, which I'm the lead singer and, and main co-writer of. Yep. All of that material. Um, there's a stack of other albums that I'm on as well. Um, you know, uh, Diesel and Dub, um, Declan Kelly. So, so there's two tracks on that that I sing, but I didn't write anything on that. It's all Midnight All songs. Um, so th there's a whole bunch of albums that I'm on, but they're not under my name. And singles, singles. Yeah. I'm on, you know, like there's Paul Mack. Um, oh, which one? Uh, yeah, he's only had one number one hit. Was it Just the Thing? Yeah, right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm on that. Cool. Um, back your vocals on that. Yep. Margaret Ehrlich. Yep. You know, your, your compadre. Oh, yeah. Um, Boy in the Moon. Yep. That was number one. I'm on that. Oh, right. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm on that. Um, Jenny Morris, another one of your another compadres. <laughs> I'm, I'm on a couple of her albums doing backing vocals. Yeah. So, you know, so I'm the guy that's everywhere, but you don't know who I am or that I'm even there. Yeah, we do now. Yeah, you do now. <laughs> but I, I, I turn up in surprising places. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool, man. Um, um, when I think of Lazy Bones and, and Marrickville, I, I, you know, to me, I instantly think of like a real thriving, well, was thriving and will be again thriving musical hub in, mm. in Sydney. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, Lazy Bones and some of those venues around and, and what what some of those um, venue owners are, are, are trying to do and, and um, yeah, just talk a little bit about how, how that's going Okay, well, in the last two years of lockdown, Marrickville Road has basically kept me alive musically. Mm -hmm. So you've got Lazy Bones, you've got Camelot, Django Bar, Gasoline Pony, and Butcher's Brew. Now, during lockdown, I've played all of those gigs. So I would rotate all of them, and they would keep me afloat, you know, so that I didn't go nuts. Now, Lazy Bones is owned by a music lover. Butcher's Brew is owned by a music lover. Um, Gasoline Ponies owned by a music lover. Uh, so all of the venues in Marrickville are owned by music lovers or run by music lovers. Camelot's the same, right? Not every venue in Sydney is owned by music lovers. So we get back to this corporate thing where you have a lawyer or an accountant or, you know, a, an ex-pharmacist that put together the gallery in Bondi. Mm. Um, a Spring Street Social, it's called now. But um, that was initially put together by a pharmacist. Really? Who went yeah, yeah. He, he ended up going broke. But, um, you know, it's kind of, 
unless your passion is music, then you actually don't set the venue up properly. What ends up being is like a restaurant with music or a hotel that is effectively a restaurant with music or something like that, right? And it's, it's you know that you're there to sell beer, not play music, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. Yep. You're there to keep people kind of busy while they drink, right? Um, whereas places like Marrickville Road and, you know, um, certain vent there, there are quite a few around Sydney, but you got to pick and choose them. Um, music's not the, 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 the driving passion behind that venue. It's an aside. And that's frustrating for a musician because you don't have the same, you're not on the same page really. You know, you're working together, but you're not. You're at odds with each other. You know, um, you know. Some people, it's all about money and ticket prices and bums on seats. It's not actually about entertainment. Whereas, from a few musicians' point of view, it's about entertainment. Yeah, now sure, we want to get paid too, and we want to make money. But in the end, we want an audience that appreciates what we do. So if you have the ability to play at a venue that actually cares about you and what you do and how you do it, then you tend to give that little bit more. So, you know, I'll do a deal with most of the Marriottville venues that I won't do for any other venue in Sydney, right? And the main reason for that is when push comes to shove, those venues will call me back. So my first gig back after this lockdown is at Lazy Bones. Yeah, it's on Tuesday, right? Tuesday? No, this Friday. Fri Friday. Oh, Friday, sorry. So Monday's the first gig back. I'll yep. be there anyway. Yeah. Right? Um, I'll probably be there on Wednesday because another friend of mine who I support, Hammerhead, you know, Jason. Jason, Burr, yeah, he's been on the he, show. Yep. He'll be there. Yep. So I'll go there to support him. You know what I mean? He's supporting me. I'm going to support him. So it's it's kind of, but we all have dialogue with the owner of the venue, you know, and the owner has gone, right, we need to get this kicking again. What can you do for us? And we go, well, what can you do for us? And we sit down, we talk it, we nut it out, and we come up with something that works for all of us. Now, when Lazy Bones first started, he wasn't paying decent money, you know. It was crap. And we said, well, okay, we'll come in here and we'll do this. When things get better, take care of us. And he, ha he has done that. He has done that. It's about working together. It's about being a team or a family. You know, as I, you know, it, it's like the musician's fraternity, large as it is, is like a family to me. You know, and I have family in every state in this country that I can share with, lean on, they can lean on me, you know, and, and that's that's the beauty of it, you know. And I have that in New Zealand as well. So it's not it's not relegated to just here, you know. Yeah, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Um let's talk about your current band, the Pat Pal band. What's um Well how, that's 
Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about the Pat Pell band, the the whole sort of thing and how how that came about and um what sort of different incarnations of the band it's been over the years and and well and what you're doing now. The Pat Pell band was about being able to um, do stuff that I wrote that I want to do when I feel like it. Yep. So then I had to do an album, and that album's about time. Um, but the Pat Powell band can be anything it needs to be at any given time. So for argument's sake, I'll go and do a wedding as the Pat Powell band and do a whole load of covers. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's, it's me. I understand. Yep. So it doesn't matter. Um, but the Pat Powell band can go out and do originals all night as well. So just depends on the gig. Um, I'm in another band called Irie Man, which is uh, a rock steady band. It's it's run by a very good friend of mine, Ilya Sweck. And we do basically covers, but there's a couple of originals in there. And it's his band, but I'm generally the, the lead singer for that. Um, we also have another band of his called The Groove Depot, which is more blues soul leaning. And he will play in the Pat Powell band or Irie Man or and we change the format to suit the the individual gig. Gotcha. You know, we, we don't get caught up in that. It's we want to play together, we dig each other, it's easy, and we pick the players to suit whatever we're playing on the day. Um, the protesters are uh, is a reggae band that I've got with another guy, Michael Brown. And that's all original. And that came out. Of, it was Michael's concept that I joined him with. We're the main songwriters, but other people contribute as well from the band. But that band is essentially about um, human rights and social injustice, you know, in, in a reggae vibe, you know, because mm -hmm. reggae lends itself to, to the cry of the underdog. Yeah, right. and then there, and then there's the jazz gigs. You yeah, know, it's I, I do I I do a lot of jazz, um, often with James Ryan, or with Andrew Dickerson, yep. or with both of them, or me doing them on my own. You know, but it's it's um, again, it's more about Pat Powell is about um, entertainment, right and someone will ring me and say, I need this. And I go, okay, I've got the band. I've got the network. You know, there are enough musicians around that I play with. Like, like I said, when I, when I met you that first time, I've played with all of those guys. Yep. And depending on the gig dictates who I play with, you yep. know, yep. Um, Steve Hunter's in a band called the Subterraneans. Yep. Um, I sing for them quite regularly. Yep. You know, it's one of the toughest gigs that I have to do. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Um, but it's really gratifying when I do it. Yeah. Yeah. You so, you also do some Motowny sort of stuff like um Yeah, so kind of like you know Kelvin and Yeah, so yeah. That, those are the kind of uh 
revival kind of nostalgia nostalgia shows that I do. Yeah. So I'm in the um, Dancing in the Shadows of Motown. Yeah. But I'm also in the Marvin Gaye Experience. Yeah. I've also got a Nat King Cole show which I run. Oh, cool. And I've got a Bill Withers show that I run, and I run the Bill Withers show with um, Justin Delia, the bass player. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that I do. But I also do some soul blues stuff every now and again with Liza Allback and Kate Lush and Clayton Dolly. So, you know, um, now and again, I do a double up with um, Rob Seuss where we do a blues sing. You know, there's I've got a band that I play with sometimes in Canberra doing blues as well. So it's kind of book the gig and we'll sort out how and who and what you know the week before that's cool man yeah yeah so you got that real hustle vibe um, when, when you when you need when you uh, need to <laughs> no it's you know what it's i've got a bit of a hustle vibe i don't hustle like half of my friends do oh really <laughs> no nah, man yeah. i'm too lazy right? <laughs> but um, but um by being versatile then I'm able to jump into those things when they come up. Yeah. So, you know, it's like if someone says, can you, it's always yes. Of course. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I'll worry about it later. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I asked you to tell me a song, uh, one song that's had the biggest impact on you. Um, so what we're going to do now, I'll, I'll get you to introduce that song. And yeah. before we start playing it, Tell us why that song. I think I know why now. Um, yeah, and maybe. Um, maybe I don't. Maybe yeah. I'm just being presumptuous. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> we'll see. Got to look at where I was at the time. You okay. Know? All right. Okay. Um, so introduce the song, and then yeah, we'll go from there. Okay. Um, the song that we're going to play now is "My Sherry and More" by Stevie Wonder, and. Uh, I can't remember what year it came out. It was either 67 or 68. I think it was 68. Might have been even 69. I can't remember, but it's around there. But um, I was absolutely blown away by this song, and I would play it over and over and over again. And uh, it's I love it as much today as I did when I first heard it. Um, It's not a song that I sing very often. I've probably only done it about four times in my life. But um, there's just something about it that strikes a chord with me. Now, at this moment in my life, I don't actually have a favourite song or a favourite singer. There's too many, right? But when you're 10, you tend to be a bit more polarised. Yeah. You know, like when you're young and you're a kid and something will just stick with you and drive you in a way that it won't drive you as an adult. So... When I say this is a favorite song, it was a favorite song because of that time yep. and what was happening in the world at that time and how it made me feel at that time. Is there specific elements of the song that really caught you or was it just the whole, nah, there's, the whole there's thing? Like, it's just perfect. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing yeah. wrong with that song yeah. All right, on let, any level. All right, let's have a bit of a listen. Yeah.
magic, man. Magic. Yeah. So a little, a little bit of um, insight into this song. It, you know, it was originally called Oh My Marsha. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. When he, when he originally wrote it, it was for an old school, school girlfriend. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and then um, I think he he took it to Barry Gordy, and he went, "Nah, I've got to do my Barry Gordy thing to it." And yeah, <laughs> and um, you know the 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 crew went about and they recorded it, and then he came in a bit later and, and then done his vocal part, and I think it originally came out as a B side. Yeah, and um, oh. and they ended up building a building a whole album around it, and I mean I think yesterday, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, um. Yes to me, yes, yes to me. Yeah, that was the other song yes on that me. album. The yeah. rest of them were great kind of, song, yeah. kind of just fillers, you know. But um, yeah, and and listening to that in the headphones, which which I haven't done for a long time, just now. Uh-huh. You know, Everything's you've got, just you've spot got, on. Yeah, and you've got the guitar on the left. Yeah, you've got the yeah. drum, the drums and the piano on the right. Yeah. Did you hear that? And, mm. the, and the vocal and the percussion yeah. on the right too. It's just yeah. that that sort of uh, the old way of recording. You know, it's not. And then how they pull stereo. things up, you know. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, you see the congas. Yeah. yeah. Cool, man. That's wicked. Nah, man, it's it's um, Stevie. What can you say? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's trying trying to pick a song of his that you say is your favorite. Now I couldn't do it because obviously since then he's just done so much more. Yep. That I love as much as I love that. You know. Um, all right, Pat. So you've got this gig coming up next week. Well, I yeah. mean, when this podcast out, it may have already happened, but anyway, mm. you got the, 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 the first gig back at Lazy Bones. Yeah. Um, have you been able to plan a few things uh, ahead of that? Uh, I've got a thing- gig after that. I've got a gig the next day after that okay. in Roselle. Okay. But yes, I've got, um, Probably not much happening in October, but towards the end of November, I've got gigs booked. I've got gigs booked in December. Awesome. I've got gigs booked through January, February, March, April. Oh, fantastic. Um, May. So, yeah, I'm like a lot of those gigs that I have lined up were for this year. Yeah, and what I've done over the last couple of months is just shuffle them every time the lockdown has been extended we've shuffled it maybe a month or two months or whatever we think is going to be viable mm. so i've actually got no worries about gigs coming into the future because they're already booked awesome right um yeah so you know so a lot of which were already booked so we've just reshuffled them but some new gigs have come in you know yep Yep. Yeah. Have you found that there's a lot of? I mean, I, I mentioned you before. You know, are you a bit of a hustler, but maybe not as much as as your friends or or, I, or I, other people. I, I, our friends are serious hustlers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What, what it is with me is because I'm in a few bands. Nobody's no one band is doing heaps. Yeah. Okay. But it's because you're so, in, you're in. All... So by being in a whole bunch of bands. Yeah. One of them's doing something every week. Okay, that's cool. So basically, it won't take me long to get back to two or three a week. Yeah. And two or three a week, three gigs a week in in recent years, and I'm saying like the last 10 years, mm. is actually a good strike rate. Cool. 
yeah cool. which i didn't think it was because of what i'd gone through before but it turns out that you know if you've got a steady three a week you're actually doing okay you're doing all right okay um yeah. what i was getting to with the the hustler thing yeah um i've heard it's ha- i've heard it happening and i know of people that are that are doing it and um there's people kind of going in now um you know really trying to get the gig and undercutting um yeah, I've heard that, but yeah. that's not a new thing. No, I know it's not a new thing, but it's it's mm. kind of at a. Uh, it seems like it's at a different kind of level now because yeah, people are really really desperate to get in there and re reestablish. If, if, if like... they weren't if they weren't established already yeah. by their talent, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, look, look, you know what? It's you get some young kid that's just come out of a con or whatever. They spent all that time and money and effort learning to play really well. Yeah. And they need to play. Yeah. Right? I'm not, I'm not talking. And, to, yeah. and I, I understand them and I understand your indie gigs and your pop bands wanting the gig and going, look, we'll play for beer or we'll play for nothing or we'll play for peanut. I understand it. Yeah. Right? Yep. It doesn't, what they don't understand because they're so young or inexperienced is it actually hurts the industry in the long run. Yeah. yeah. Right. Now, the older guys like me, right, and I'm old, when, when you know, I'm not going to go out and play for nothing anymore. You know, it's it's just like you either want me or you don't, yep. right? And you want me at my fee or you don't. You know, we can negotiate, sure. We can work together to, to, to a common goal or mm. a common end, mm. right? But don't insult me, you know. I'm a, I'm a grown man. Yep. I've got kids, I got, you know. Uh, all the same stuff that anybody else has got yep. to deal with. And I'm coming out to deliver and and I have a good reputation within within the industry and I, I want to maintain that. Yep. But to maintain that, I can't undercut myself. Gotcha. So if you don't want to pay my rates, go get the guy that will do it for your rates. Gotcha. Man. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'll wait. I'll wait. Yeah. Because I would rather go out, get well remunerated, and walk away happy. Happy that I've entertained the people and I've done the right thing by them. They've done the right thing by me. The venue's happy. That's what I want. You know, and if it means that I've got to go that back to one gig a week or what, so be it. I'd rather do one gig a week and be ecstatically happy than do 10 gigs and be bitching and moaning about it. Yeah. Well said. Well said. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't talking so much about the young, you know, people, you know, wanting to get their, you know, first well, gigs or whatever I'm well, talking well, about. The kids, There's established, yeah. established people out there. And well, the established people are, they're the same as me, yeah. you know, like, Oh, not some of the ones, fret. some of the ones yeah. I know they're not. Uh, well, I wish they were, but <laughs> well, most most of my friends, most of the people I play with, we're all around the same age, right? Yep. And we all support each other. Great. So if there if there's a gig that's new, someone will tell me about it, awesome. or if I find a new gig, I'll tell my friends about it. You know, we book each other, we play with each other, we inform each other about. Good venues, bad venues, new venues, old venues, whatever. We all kind of look out for each other. Now, some people, depending on their mental state, are patient. Some people are not patient. 
some people are good at dialogue, some people are not good at dialogue. And and with dialogue, you know, it's you got contractual things that you got to negotiate for. If you don't ask for stuff, you often don't get it. Yep. You know, so you've got to ask. You can't be afraid to say, this is what I want. You can't be afraid to say no. You know, it's like, if I say no to this gig tomorrow, I'm confident that I'm going to get another gig. I don't know when, but it doesn't matter. But I think I'm good enough to get another gig. Yep. And you have to believe in yourself. You know, there's a certain amount of um, belief that you have to have in yourself to get up on stage in the first place. Yep. So if you if you've got the 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 guts and the the chutzpah to get up on stage in the first place, then you use that same thing to negotiate a fair deal. You know, there are venues out that want entertainment and they want music and they want good players, right? And when they get the the players that aren't good, and to be honest, I've only seen one bad band in recent years. I've seen bands that are not great because they're young and inexperienced, but you can see that they've got something. And, you know, you walk away going, yeah, give them six months, give them a year, whatever, they'll be kicking ass. And that's great. I love that. And you encourage that. But there was a band that supported me in, I think it was Wagga, right? And they were truly horrible, you know? And it was like, I can't remember the last time I saw a band that I just went, oh, my God, they're truly horrible. (sighs) You know, I didn't even know what they're playing. It took us like 20 bars to figure out what song they were playing, (laughs) right? And the song was Play That Funky Music. Ooh. And usually you know what song that is off the intro intro riff, riff. (laughs) right? You know, know? and and I was there with like 10 other musicians going, you kidding? Yeah. You know, like, wow, okay. I, it was the quickest we ever packed up, packed up and got out. <laughs> Just, but um, it, but it's rare, you know. I mean, like I I I have all the sympathy and all the support for people coming up, yep. you know. And I have even more support for my compadres that are like me. You've put 30, 40 years into this industry, fifty years in some cases, you know, and you're plugging away. And you don't want much. You just want to play. Yep. You know, but you don't want to be shafted. You don't want to be insulted. You just want to play. And, you know, you, you, you do the best that you can and you hope that the audience appreciates what you do. And most of the time they do. You know, it's, it's uh, I did a gig one time and apparently there was a complaint, one complaint, right? It was a sellout full house venue. And the venue got back to me about the one complaint. I went, you serious? <laughs> you know, I was like, come on. Ugh. I mean, like, you know, you've got, well, I think it was like 100 and somebody, 120 or 130 people in there that all got off on the gig. Yeah. One person complained yep. that I didn't do enough songs that they recognized. <laughs> and I went, Okay, well, they didn't say that I played badly. Yeah. They didn't say that I wasn't entertaining. They said I didn't do enough songs that they recognized. So be it. I can live with that. Okay. Did you get rebooked? Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah. So it must have, been, must, have, must have been that entertainment manager's first week or something, and he had to put a... Oh, look, you know, show, sometimes... Show, show, his, show his boss how, how cool he yeah, is. Yeah, like. something like <laughs> that, you know. I, and I've had, in recent years, I've had one gig turn around, one venue turn around and say, look, we're going we're gonna to cancel the booking that you have because we don't think it's going to work. So I went, yeah, okay. So I, I went up the road to another venue and sold it out and did the gig anyway. <laughs> You know, on the same night, oh, it was like, awesome. you know, magic. I, it, it's 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 sad that that happens, but it does happen. Yeah, and you have to deal with that. You got to roll with the punches. You know, it's it's um it's not a perfect world. It's certainly not an e- easy industry to work in. Yeah, you know, there's good days, there's bad days. You know, I mean, like I've been in lockdown for I don't know how long now. And I've had worse times in music than this. Okay. You know, so, because for me, it's about whether I'm working or not. So I've had worse times with no COVID, yeah. right, where I haven't had gigs. You know? That's, that's really interesting. I, I, haven't heard, and, I haven't heard that point of view. Yeah, I've had worse times. So everyone, everyone I'll talk so, to. You. So it's kind of like, yeah, okay. It'll come back. It'll be okay. We just got to work out how we deal with this. Yeah. You know, we got to work out how we live with it. Right. And once we work out how we live with it, the gigs come back and I'll be out there playing again. Yep. So, you know, it's like I ain't get depressed. I'm not upset. I'm not angry with anybody. You know, uh, well, that's not strictly true. There's a guy named Morrison that I think is a dick, but, you know, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, it's fine. I don't like him either. <laughs> but but, that, but that's about it. You know what I mean? It's it's it's. I think that um, if it wasn't for the individual state premiers, we would be in a worse situation than we are. And that's not to say that I'm loving the situation that we're in. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, I'm old enough to remember harder times. I'm old enough to remember tougher times, and I came through all of them. So. I see no reason why I don't come through this and, you know, go back to where I was. And when I say where I was, nothing's going to be the same. It's going to be different. But the only constant in life is change. And I've weathered every change that's hit me in my whole life. So this is just another one. I'll work with it. It's what I do. It's like music, music saves me. Music keeps me afloat. You know, it's, I don't get depressed because of music. When I'm joyful, it's because of music. When I'm sharing with people, it's because of music. So I'm not, I'm not worried about anything. <laughs> Pat Powell, thanks so much for joining me tonight, man. It's been a real pleasure. Um, long time coming since we met last year to be here tonight doing this. Um, yeah, you've, you've made my week to be honest. It's, um, oh, thank it's you. great, it's thank great you. to hear your, your point of view. All the, a lot of point of views I've heard have been, you know, all very, very negative, but, um, yeah, I think you're a shining light, man. And, uh, I'm stoked. I got to talk to you tonight. It's thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I did know of you, because I, I have I've listened to a few few of the podcasts, cool, you know, man. and I've enjoyed them. Cool, man. You know, because you know, like something will pop up and it'll be someone I dig anyway. So it was like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, 
And I, th- I actually think you do a really, really good job, you know, and it's, it's good for people to kind of get an insight of where we're coming from as, as musicians. So I, because pre- I wouldn't do it for myself. So okay. I, appreci- I appreciate the fact that you're doing it for me and the fraternity that you and I are a part of, because I didn't know you played drums, but, you know, so it means you're one of us. So, um, again, you know, it, it means that the, the questions make sense. You know, the, 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 uh, the end product is something that everyone benefits from, listener and artist alike. Well, thanks so much, Pat. Thanks Pleasure, so much, man. man. Pleasure. Talk to you soon, bro. Take it easy, and I'll, yeah, I'll, hope so. I'll be out to see a gig soon. Cool. All right. See I'll, you, man. I'll introduce you to this kind of stuff. <laughs> what's, what's that? Jesus. What is that? <laughs> a single malt whiskey. Ooh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Talk soon, Pat. Talk All right. soon. Later, man. Bye.
Nothing you'll be regretting So honey, stop your fretting 